This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comic books, graphic novels, and sequential art. Today's program is a look at Ben Dixon, a young comic book writer and artist who has written such titles as Slum Droid, Falling Sky, and Santa Claus vs. the Nazis. This interview was recorded live at Cartoon County in Brighton, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. Ben, you've brought a uh, selection of images from your comics that I guess you wanted to talk through and then ask you some questions um, afterwards? Uh, yeah, or, or you know, ask questions as we go along, that's okay. absolutely fine. So. Yeah, I thought I thought I'd start with this just because I thought I'd start with, you know, like where I came from, so to speak. Because uh, I always find it quite interesting. People actually get into comics, how people start reading them, and so on. Uh, and I grew up in a small town uh, in Gloucestershire, with no comic shop, no access to American comics, so I had no, no idea any of that stuff was going on. So I grew up on Eagle in 2000 AD, uh, and so I, I grew up reading this. Stuff, quite subversive um, material that I didn't really realise quite how subversive it was uh, as a ten-year-old boy when I was reading it. Uh, but anyway, um, so I grew up reading that stuff, and I was uh, massively influenced by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Pat Mills. Those are, you know, the three people I'm probably most influenced by, writing-wise. But most of all, I'd say John Wagner. Um, and that was basically all there was. It was Eagle 2000 AD, those kind of comics, really. Um, and then uh, I moved to Cardiff to attend university. And for the first time, I had access to a comic shop. And I don't know what your first experience of going into a, a, a specialist comic shop like Forbidden Planet is, if you've never actually been to one of these things before. But it is basically walking in and having no information, <laughs> no idea, what the hell is all this? You know, I recognise Batman, whatever, but um, I just would randomly go and pick up stuff, buy them and whatever, and one of the books I picked up was V for Vendetta, and just wondering what it was, flicked to the first page, the first page says uh, something like, uh, good evening London, this is the voice of fate, uh, it's the 5th of November 1998. I was like, hang on a minute. And I looked at the clock, just double checking. It was the 5th of November, 1998. <laughs> I was like, this is a bit weird. Okay, right, I'm gonna buy this and see where it goes. And it was, it was I think it was like 6 p.m. or something in the, in the book and it was two hours from the actual time in which it was set. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna buy this, take it home, read it, see what happens. And, um, and it, you know, as I'm sure you all know, it's a really great book and had a massive influence on me in terms of, you know, what you can do uh, in comics. And uh, it had a kind of formative influence on me wanting to be a comics writer because of the level of maturity and, and uh, uh, you know, social commentary and, and so on that you can have also whilst having an enormous amount of fun, really. So... Most of my work since, you know, since I became a writer has been, has had an awful lot of social commentary in it. Uh, and that's, a lot of that has come from Viva Vendetta, really. So, there you go. 
I think I've told you at least some of that before, haven't I? Yeah. Uh, it was the voice of fate then, right, Dave? Right yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. It was the voice of fate. Uh, so, yeah, I kind of dabbled in small press and did bits and bobs. Um, and around 2004, 2005, I embarked on my first graphic novel. This is this is it. This is a book called Falling Sky. Uh, it's uh, an 80-page graphic novel. Originally, I was trying to get other people to draw it for me, and they were all like, uh, no, it's 80 pages, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is understandable. So I set about drawing it myself. Um, the book is about a, a catastrophic asteroid impact. It's about, I just, I, the elevator pitch is that it's a, a conspiracy thriller set 44 hours before the end of the world. Uh, an asteroid impact is going to hit. Is is going to hit and not literally destroy the world, but destroy society. You know, it's, it's big enough that it's going to change everything. And uh, the the governments of the world have kind of got together and realised that there isn't actually enough time to stop it. There's no way of stopping it. So what do you do? Well, you plan to survive it. How do you? you how do you do that? You build these massive shelters. Of course you do. Where do you get the money from? Well modern day, where do you get it from? Well, you, uh, you privatise it, don't you? You send out the private uh, contractors. You get uh, these kind of big multinational companies, security companies, to build all the shelters. Well, that kind of defines who actually goes into it because it costs an awful lot of money. Basically, to cut a long story short, only the very rich will actually go into these shelters. Uh, it's kind of... It's a satire on privatisation to a degree because it's basically saying, well, yeah, they privatised the apocalypse, <laughs> in effect. Um, and the story is about a, uh, a loans company manager who gets kidnapped 44 hours before impact and as such becomes a, uh, a major risk to the, uh, to the entire secret, which needs to hold for at least another 24 hours whilst they actually get everybody into the shelters. Uh, and it's a kind of ticking clock scenario where these two people, the, the loans company manager and his kidnapper, are basically trying to survive these kind of hit squads who are trying to kill them and try and survive what's actually going to come next as well. And like V, it's political and dystopian. Yes. Uh, but V ends with a note of hope, while this is completely bleak. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is actually a specific reason for that. I mean, I, I was... I was frustrated. I, I wouldn't say it's entirely bleak because some of the ultra rich might be nice people who survive. No, it's it's the <laughs> idea. Why would you actually want to survive it if you've got to actually live with the kind of people that would be in such a shelter? <laughs> that's actually kind of you know what in a way that's that's what it's saying. It, it bears it has some kind of um, shares a lot of DNA with Stark by Ben Elton. Uh, in that way, which was not intended. I only really realised that after I'd written it. Uh, but the thing is, I was not in a very good place when I actually wrote this book. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd been a teacher and I'd, I'd quit teaching uh, and was kind of, um, yeah, I'd kind of burned out basically and wasn't really sure what I was doing with my life. So uh, this book was a catharsis in a way and that, and that to a large degree is actually why it's so bleak. Mm. Uh, I was trying to, I was kind of working through stuff. Uh, in in my head, so you were trying to find an artist for it and had to draw it yourself. And it's interesting the style that you've used. That mm. The um, 
the characters are very much in a kind of cartoony, clear line style, yeah. while the backgrounds are far more painterly. Yeah, uh, and that seems to be a, si- a style I've settled on because since I did this book, uh, I've worked with other artists and I've actually come back to drawing my own book again. And I've been trying to find a style to suit it, and I've again ended up doing something quite similar in that the the characters are they've got dotted eyes, you know, they're quite they're kind of line drawn but the but the backgrounds are extremely detailed and much more painterly. Mm. And that comes from how how I work because I photo reference everything. Uh, I, I'm I have a very visual mind, but it's not visual in the kind of very detailed way that a lot of uh, artists are where you know you get a little bit of reference and then you can put, fill in all the details and I struggle to do that mm. so it's much more effective for me t- if I actually use photography and work from photography because I can improvise I can find angles and find interesting things that are going on uh, within the lens and then actually draw draw from that mm. um, but I'm also I mean I'm quite good at, at, at drawing from life basically uh, you know I'm, I'm a painter and stuff as well and, but I always paint from life I, I tend not to do the fantasy thing so much mm. so, so the way it, it seemed a natural way for me to do it and it was published by Scar Comics mm. can you talk a bit about them uh, Scar Comics are uh, Shane Chebsey and Andy Richmond um, I don't really work with Andy so much so I tend to work with Shane and Shane as you probably know has been a, a figure in kind of small press comics for a long time and he's, he's pretty much dedicated his, a large part of his life to promoting and, and uh, you know shouting about small press and how great they are and, 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 and all that and he decided to set up his own publishing company to kind of push that forward and uh, I, it just happened to be at the same time where I was showing Falling Sky to people and he was he was very keen so uh, yeah that it, just, it was a no-brainer really this is uh, a scene from quite near the end of the book where the asteroid actually comes over so I obviously made a day trip to London to <coughs> get get the reference material I needed um, and yeah the uh, the asteroid itself is not photo referenced I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's about the only thing that isn't <laughs> in pretty much the entire book <laughs> I did, I, after Falling Sky, I did uh, quite a few um, mini mini comics. So I did some stuff for Accent UK uh, and uh, a few few other people. Um, and this is one I did for uh, Control Alt Shift Unmasks Corruption, uh, which uh, Paul Gravett put together. And this was for Control Alt Shift was uh, a a branch of Christian Aid. And Christine A do this wonderful, all this wonderful work uh, abroad uh, about um, combating poverty and, and human rights and various other things. And Control Op Shift was an attempt to reach beyond the church because Christian A is obviously you know Christian-based organisation, and I think some of them said, "Well, why why don't we actually reach beyond that? Why not?" You know. And so Control Op Shift was. Uh, I don't think it's around anymore, but it's uh, it was a fantastic. Uh, it did some fantastic stuff, and um, yeah. So Paul asked me to to do something on the theme of corruption, and <laughs> I did a story about it's a it's it's a true story, and this is the first bit of oral history basically. I I did um, a friend of mine uh, called Nathan Nathan Eisenstadt, uh, who I, I know in my hometown in Bristol. Um, had gone to Colombia as part of a, 
a um, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a, a university delegation uh, to uh, to Cali uh, in uh, Colombia to the University of Valley. I think I'm saying that right. Anyway, um, to document human rights abuses uh, and human rights violations uh, on behalf, uh, you know, from from the students in in Cali. Um, and he documented all this extraordinary stuff. And on that day uh, that he was there, it just so happened that the students at the university had, uh, had organized a protest about uh, the America, North American Free Trade Agreement with Colombia. Uh, not dissimilar to uh, TTIP, which is going through at the moment. It's a similar kind of setup. Um, and they were also protesting something else. But anyway, um, what happened was that uh, ESMAD, the, the Colombian riot squad, uh, broke into the university and started shooting at the uh, students with uh, tear gas and with live ammo and uh, all this awful stuff. And uh, a lot of them, a lot of the students, kind of disappeared and they were, you know, beaten up and so on. And basically, this this boy here uh, called uh, Johnny Silver uh, had uh, had had polio as a child, and he was not able to run. And this policeman basically saw him not running, as everyone else was running, took took aim and shot him in the neck, and he basically died uh, on his way to hospital. And the thing is, this is in no way unusual my understanding and uh, you know this is, this is an everyday occurrence basically uh, there's nothing nothing unusual about Johnny Silver's death what was unusual was that international observers had been there um, they hadn't they hadn't actually been there when he died they'd left uh, like I think 10 minutes before but basically they got involved in all this and if we go on to the next page um, basically this massive protest uh, took place in response, and then they occupied uh, the Ermita Church, uh, and it just escalated from there. And it was it was uh, a major kind of event, and um, other students were uh, uh, were murdered as, as as a result of trying to invest launch an investigation into it, and all this kind of thing. And where I came in was, you know, I wanted to tell this story. Uh, the book came out, and it was really successful. I think it was pretty successful anyway, but um, uh, Nathan and, well, not Nathan, but if, if some mutual friends decided that they wanted to translate the strip into Spanish, which they did, and uh, my friend Claire then uh, took the strip and a copy of the book back with her to Colombia when she went back, and she gave a copy uh, to the parents of Johnny Silver uh, at Valley University. And she, she gave. Basically, they were on stage, and they would. They went up on stage, and they gave this talk about how um, what happened to Johnny and uh, all this stuff. And they and the mother, I, I think, broke down on stage, couldn't continue. And Claire came up and just said, "I've got something for you," and handed them the book, and they kind of read through it, and they were so amazed that this had actually happened, not you know, in Europe that this story had travelled to Europe, and this was in, actually in a comic strip in Europe. They went back on stage and talked about it and talked about hope and how am amazed and delighted they were that this story had actually travelled and how hopefully this would make it more difficult for such things to happen in the future. So this strip was a, a, a real education for me really that uh, you can make a difference.
you genuinely can. How did you first find out about the story? Uh, well, I, w I knew Nate at the time, uh, Nathan at, at the time, this was happening, and he sent an email uh, the day after explaining what had happened. So I, you know, I, I knew he was on this delegation, I knew he was in Colombia and, and so on, so uh, I was fully aware of the whole thing. So it was just happenstance that the control alt uh, commission came along and you were able to, yeah. to tell the story at that time? Yeah, yeah, it was just, it, it just fit. Mm. Yeah. Is that uh, Warren Police Art? Yes, it is. Thank you for reminding me. Paul, uh, Paul hooked me up with, with Warren, and I, he did an, an absolutely amazing job. Um, and I sent him a load of photo reference from, from the place, and I remember showing the, uh, the, the artwork, the finished strip to, to Nathan, and he read it, and he was like, this is exactly how it was. How is that possible? <laughs> and it's Warren. Mm. He's, he's very good at this stuff. How many pages did you have to tell the story? I think it was six. Okay. I can't remember. So that's not a lot of room, and obviously you feel a sense of responsibility yeah. in getting the story out there and telling the truth. Did that put additional pressure on you? It did, but it was fantastic because every time you get told you've only got so many pages to tell a story, that teaches you how to tell a story in that many pages. Because, mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing when, you're t when you've got to condense it down because it, that's a lot of what good comics are about. It's mm. about kind of how do you actually tell this much information, how do, you, how do you fit this much information into this much space and make it work, you know. Yeah. And at least your background in terms of reading comics was in the British tradition where it's mm. anthologies yeah. of stories that are six to eight pages. Yeah, and if you look back at uh, like Hibernia doing these wonderful reprints of uh, Eagle and, and these uh, Speed and, and um, Scream and these old mm. kind of anthologies, these are the ones I kind of grew up on and you look back and, and they're like three pages a week and just you see how dense the storytelling is it's really extraordinary how how much they actually managed to fit in and how skillful that was mm. so uh, yeah that was a great lesson mm. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this is um, a short story eight pages called Divinity Existence and Toast and is a, a story I did for Accident UK's Robots Anthology and I'm told by Colin and Dave of Accident UK that they use this strip quite a lot to kind of sell the anthology, <laughs> which is a really nice thing to be told. So I drew this one myself. Again, it's, it's photo referenced. Uh, and it's about a, t a toaster with artificial intelligence that malfunctions and declares itself to be God. Uh, and it's really about... Uh, in the case of religion, you can't prove a negative. That's ultimately what it comes down to. So there's no way, existentially speaking, that you can disprove that a toaster is, is God. It's, you know, you can't prove that a toaster is not God, basically, uh, unless you try and disprove the existence of God in its entirety. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a bit messy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I came up with this long... Uh, this this long, the, I don't know if this finale is is on here. Uh, no, this, this this is part of part of the argument. So you know, uh, th it climaxes with um, a, a philosopher from uh, Philosophers R Us twenty four hours existential solutions <laughs> um, coming and uh, basically arguing, uh, presenting a philosophical argument, uh, uh, trying to prove the, the non existence of God, uh, which. Uh, kills the toaster's logic circuits. <laughs> um, 
But I, I, there is a, a little caveat in there saying that actually did, he doesn't actually disprove the existence of God because of some little technical flaw in his <laughs> argument. So uh, I was quite careful to put that in because I don't actually want to tell people there is no God, <laughs> frankly. But does God make better toast than everyone else? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought those um, Accent UK anthologies were a really good idea because each was themed around a different genre. So even if you didn't know some of the creators involved, if you're interested in robots or zombies or yeah. westerns, you're likely to pick it up yeah. and then experience the work of a variety of small press creators. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're fantastic. And lots of people lots of people have been in them. And, and lots of people, like I, I know towards the sort of middle of... I, I think, certainly think like towards the third or fourth book, Lots of people who are already kind of at least reasonably established were actually saying, "Can I come and come and be in it?" Um, I remember uh, Leah Moore and John Repier are, are in the the book after this, and this is after they've both you know become reasonably established. Mm. So yeah, they're, they're lovely little books. Um, <laughs> What's this? This is tale? this is from Self Made Hero. Uh, was it the uh, Lovecraft anthology volume mm. two? Uh, this is an adaptation adaptation of uh, uh, the picture in the house, um, and it's uh, drawn by Mick McMahon, uh, who you probably know from Judge Dredd, uh, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, Mick actually recommended me as the writer for this project. They'd mm. actually gone to to him because I was in contact with Mick over uh, a project called The Castrels, uh, which we were doing together, and. Uh, Self-made were looking looking to connect with them and uh, and they didn't have a contact and no one had a contact and I did and so they came to me and said can you put me in contact so I put them in contact and they got back and they said to him so who do you want to draw it who do you want to write it and he said me mm. so that was nice of him how did you find the process of adaptation fantastic okay it was really good fun it was really really good fun and what was particularly great about this story was I was able to add something. Because so much of Lovecraft is about what you don't see. Mm. Um, unspeakable horrors, yeah. unnameable monsters. Yeah, and, and then when you actually draw in, it's some buggy thing with you know tentacles and things. It suddenly doesn't look quite so scary as what was in your head. But what was wonderful about this story is that it doesn't work that way. Uh, and not only that, I was able to actually put in something that the original book, the original story couldn't do. The, the, the story refers to this book, um, a book about the Congo, which I read up around because I, I, I kind of I, I read up around the story because I wasn't really aware of it when I was asked to do it. So I obviously read it and and, mm. and learned a little bit more about it. Uh, and I discovered that this book um, about the Congo is in the story actually exists, mm. and it's all about this this old man who uh, is getting a, a perverse kind of thrill out of these images that he sees and one of the Im images is an image of cannibalism uh, but there's all these he describes these strange images um, of, these, of these men what kind of men are they and what the hell kind of creation animal is this <laughs> and it's a description in the original story and I found the original images that he was talking about huh. They're actually, they actually exist huh. so uh, that's what's in the story <laughs> It's something you don't get in the original story, and and um, the editor, um, who was it? It's uh, Doug. Uh, he uh, he was he was well impressed. <laughs> I can't remember if Doug or Dan. I keep getting them confused. Anyway, Doug Wallace. Uh, no, it was Dan. 
Yeah. It didn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. He he didn't know that the book actually existed, so that was quite uh, quite an exciting kind of revelation. <laughs> so um, this is from uh, a book called Fight the Power. The full title. No, try, yeah. The full title is Fight the Power: A Visual History of Protest Amongst the English-Speaking Peoples. <laughs> Um, and how many pages? <laughs> 200 pages. Oh, that's quite a lot. I, yeah, when I was uh, researching and planning to write this book, I had the fortune to meet Billy Bragg uh, very briefly. Um, and I mentioned this to him and I said, yeah, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm writing a, a book about the history of protest movements in English-speaking countries. And there was a long pause and he went, big book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the book is co-written by uh, Sean Michael Wilson and it's co-illustrated by uh, Hunt Emerson, John Spelling, and Adam Passion. Um, yeah, so uh, we, this is published by New Internationalist, and Sean and I, would, we just got to chatting on Skype on a fairly regular basis, and uh, this is when the Occupy movement was mm. a big thing. And uh, we, I was, he wasn't perhaps so aware of how it was being reported in the UK because he lives in Japan. Mm. Um, but I was getting very frustrated with how it was being reported as if there had never been a protest movement before. That was essentially mm. the way it was being reported and others were, being, were reporting it as if no protest movement had ever achieved anything in the history of ever. Uh, and yeah, I, I kind of... I. I think Sean and I actually coincided on this. We kind of Sean had the idea of doing history of protest movements, mm. but I had been wanting to kind of shout at people and say, you know, there have has been a whole load of protest movements before, and we kind of just coalesced and uh, um, we we joined together and uh, decided to do the book, and we just said, went through and said. Uh, 14 examples of uh, protest movements we focused on what we couldn't afford to lose rather than what we wanted to include uh, and it was fantastic, it was really good fun uh, this is from the suffragette chapter and this is uh, all the reasons why women should not have the vote which was an interest. I wrote this one and it was a, an interesting uh, exercise in coming up with <laughs> what reasons they would have had at the time uh, there were things like, um, yeah, like, so women don't contribute to society in the same way. Uh, you know, s s how society at that time was based on a family unit. And the idea was that it was one vote per household rather than one vote per person. So it was, you know, there, there was an argument, not a good argument, but there was actually an argument for it. Uh, so, yeah, so I kind of drew on that. And presumably, in terms of dividing up the art chores, were you giving the more humorous strips to Hunt, more serious ones to, to John, and so on? No, we uh, we just gave them a list and said, which ones do you want to do? Okay. <laughs> it seemed, <laughs> seemed the more effective way of doing it. And if they both said uh, that one, then uh, I can't really remember. We just kind of worked it out between us. Um, Sean and I argued a, uh, about a couple of strips, mm. uh, and, it, and it, a bit of bartering, and it was like, well, if you're having that one, then I'm having that one, mm. you know. Um, oh, so it was the same with the writing as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because we uh, we didn't co-write every strip. We uh, we 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 simply divided it in half, mm. and uh, wrote the introduction and the uh, conclusion together. Uh, mm. 
How much information do you give to artists when you're writing a script? Are you fairly prescriptive in terms of the number of panels and things like that, or do you leave a fair amount open to the person who's interpreting it? It depends on the artist. Um, like when I've worked with, uh, say, uh, James Mackay or uh, Mick McMahon, they've actually not wanted a full, a full script. They're, what they've asked for more is, is kind of a, it's more like, a, more like a treatment without the panel breakdowns. Mm. Um, other people want a full uh, breakdown, panel breakdown script, and I don't mind either way really. Mm. Um, but uh, in terms of descriptive, I, I, go more, I go much more for the John Wagner school of writing than from the Alan Moore school of writing, because you know, uh, you know, mm. Alan Moore writes very, very descriptive uh, panels, uh, panel descriptions, whereas mm. John Wagner's has been described as a, a series of very exciting telegrams. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, a, uh, for me personally, that's a better way to go because I like to give the artist just enough, just enough information they need to actually mm. draw the strip and then leave the rest to their imagination. Because if you're not, you, it's kind of a balance between um, not, you know, giving them everything they need but not restricting them in any way letting them really breathe and, and so I think a lot of that is, is, is in how you describe the panel rather than what you what you're saying it's how you're saying it yeah. you know so to try it so you I write on the basis that I've got an audience of one <laughs> and I'm trying to get them excited about the story and if I get them excited about the story then they'll make the audience excited about the story because they'll interpret it in, in the right way that's my approach to it yeah. So that's that's um, all about the uh, the effect of, of the uh, of, of the bank bailouts and so on, and uh, the reaction to the to the protest movements as well. Like um, uh, I've forgotten his name, um, Lib Dem MP. Uh, anyway, he said uh, I saw this on t on BBC News where he, in an interview he said this this quote: "No government would change its." Uh, was it? No, no government would change its fundamental economic policy simply in response to a demonstration. <laughs> uh, which made me just think, okay, well, we'd better get out and demonstrate a bit more then. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, find, I think John's an artist who definitely needs further recognition. He's worked yes. for years just sort of colouring for 2080 or finishing or something like that, something to do yeah. with the process, but has never had enough opportunities to actually put his art directly on the page. Yeah, well, he's he's a fantastically versatile artist and and very responsive. You know, he uh, each strip that we did with him came out completely differently, and he really took the opportunity to to really play uh, with with what we were giving him. And yeah, he's 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 a fantastic fantastic artist. Um, I've given a, I've, I've written a story for him for Aces Weekly actually, because uh -huh. um, he's uh, he's in a situation where he, he can't draw as much as he would like at the moment. So I've I've or rather you know. It's, I won't go into it, but basically, I, I've given him a strip. It's 21 <coughs> pages. I've said, right, here you go. Uh, enjoy. Do it when you can, and uh, let me, you know, no deadline. Let me know when you finish. So, this is me at the um, the Art and Anarchy uh, exhibition uh, last about this time last year, and this is one of my proudest moments in comics. Was actually seeing a copy of Fight the Power underneath a bulletproof glass case. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next to V for Vendetta, by the way. Uh, Is it that provocative? Apparently so. <laughs> I think the idea was that it was, they had V there and then they had modern kind of continuations of it, if, or like, you know, modern influences or mm. whatever the term is that um, 
yeah, thing, things that V had influenced and, and had gone into the modern day. So, yeah, I hung around there for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, on a lighter note, oh. Santa Claus versus the Nazis. It's yes. not really light. It's not really light at all. It's very heavy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we have David to thank for this one. Um, so yeah, the story of this was um, so David was setting up Aces Weekly and was kind of looking for people uh, to uh, to do work, do work for it. And I kind of heard about this and I emailed David and just basically said, okay, so I've got this strip that I'm looking for a publisher for. Uh, here's uh, here's the concept. Here's the first couple of pages. You know, let me know what you think. I think it took about two weeks or so for you to get back to me. Uh, and David's response was, "That sounds completely insane." <laughs> All right, let's do it. Which <laughs> was great. Um, so yeah, the, the the scenario for this is: um, uh, if Santa Claus is real, what did he do during the war? It's it's really that simple because uh, yeah I mean you have to assume because the uh, uh, the Nazis um, genuinely did uh, come in and occupy Lapland uh, hmm. uh, they they were there in around sort of forty forty one um, and they were there as part of the invasion of Russia and so you know presumably they would have discovered Santa's factory, presumably they would have realized that it has the, the greatest industrial capacity uh, <laughs> the world has ever known. It can, it's a magical factory, you know, it can build anything. Um, if, if Santa can uh, deliver a, a present to every child in the world in a single night, well, surely they can do the same with a bomb. Surely they can win the war in a single night. So whoever takes the factory will win the war, basically. So it becomes, it's kind of, you know, heroes of Telemark, times a thousand <laughs> it's uh, yeah it, it's it's a very silly concept but it's it's kind of taking that silly concept and really thinking it through and saying okay what are the actual consequences of this um, it was enormous fun to write it's probably the most fun I've ever had of writing anything really the artists by Gavin Mitchell and colors by Miroslav Merva and Owen Watts and it was published in Aces Weekly volumes two, three, six, six, and, seven. six and seven. Thank you. Yeah, and it, it had a really, really good response, didn't it? It was um, yeah, the, the response was fantastic. And it's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it, it's basically it's it's an action World War Two action movie. It's the kind of you know the kind of thing that might get shown on Channel Four on a Saturday afternoon and, or a bank holiday or whatever, but with Santa Claus in it. Uh, and yeah, we're kind of um, pushing for a, a paperback edition, or you know, paper, printed edition at the moment. There, there are there have been some problems getting getting that out, but you know, we'll keep pushing that and seeing how it happens. But you can actually read it right now at Aces Weekly. Mm. Yes, you so, should read it right now. Yeah, and uh, buy the digital version because that's the only important thing. And that's the original version as well. Yeah, that's the, that's the real deal, and uh, I'm just. <laughs> No, you, you plug away. <laughs> and the art looks so much better on the screen than on the page. The art looks as exactly like that. Look at the brilliance, look at the vibrancy, yeah. which we'll never get in any printed volume. <laughs> and again, it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying that you um, said your interest in comics came from reading British weeklies. And yeah. So here you are writing a strip where a new installment comes out every week yeah. until you get to the end of a storyline and then there's a breather yeah. and then the next storyline begins. How did you find that 
writing for that process with a cliffhanger, you know, every few pages that would then be continued. It, it was it was fantastic, and um, I don't think I could have done it if I hadn't actually grown up reading all those uh, all those weeklies because. You know, I, I went back to the memory of it, and I went back to the Hibernia uh, reprints of Thirteenth Floor and Doomlord and those kind of things, which were three pages per week or two pages mm. per week, and, and just looked at it and said, "Well, how do they do this? You know, how do they actually fit so much in, and, and how much it, in, is kind of in between the panels?" And they they use a lot of um, uh, uh, caption boxes filling in what's happened in between mm. the panels, or fill, you know, and I didn't want to do that. Uh, so it was it was a real it was a real challenge, but it I think it really benefits the strip actually. Um, the fact that it has been written for three page instalments. Mm. So yeah. <laughs> uh, Hopefully the print version will come out, not distracting from the excellent Aces Weekly version. Mm. Um, but if it does, will it be printed landscape format, or are you going to put two lots per page? I, I would push for landscape format, but cool. we'll, we'll have to see, ultimately. Mm. Uh, so this... Uh, it moved on by itself? Yeah, it moved on a couple. Um, yeah, this, this, this is... Um, <laughs> This is a big reason why I actually wanted to write the strip was uh, mm. the moment where Santa Claus kind of comes back and is because uh, Santa actually disappears for a large part of the strip. He's the kind of hidden hidden kind of secret of the story is that he's not actually the central character. Mm. Um, this uh, is it. Sorry, if I yeah. skip forward back a bit. Oh no, he's not there. Um, yeah, uh, a character called uh, Peter who is uh, comes from Scandinavian. Uh, Christmas mythology, uh, Svart Piets, he's known over there, I okay. think, or something like that. Um, he was originally Santa's slave, uh, and then obviously when people thought realised slavery wasn't such a good thing, um, he became Santa, Santa's helper that he uh, rescued from slavery. Hmm. And I thought that was a, a really fascinating idea. So, uh, uh, so Piet is, uh, is a very controversial character in... Uh, in Scandinavia because he's he's portrayed in very much that kind of black and white minstrel kind of uh, racist mm. kind of way and so you've got one side of an argument saying this character's racist he should be removed from the anthology from the uh, mythology and you've got the other side of the argument saying he's traditional kids love him mm. and my argument I guess was what's actually wrong with Santa's helper being black mm. There's nothing wrong with it. All you've got to do is stop using racist imagery. Mm. So well, I think the problem is, and this turns up in the uh, liberal media every Christmas, it's mm. like, look at these funny Scandinavians who like blacking off to celebrate Christmas. Mm. And it does seem quite dodgy. Yeah, it, it does. Um, <laughs> I mean, my, I, I guess, I mean, my, my attitude, my argument with this was, there's nothing wrong with the concept of the character. Mm. So why not make him three-dimensional? Why not make him the main character? Why not, you know, create all, all, uh, my own version because my, it's my own version of Santa as well it's mm. not, you know, it's all of these are my own interpretations of, of them and Santa here has quite serious uh, uh, mental health problems actually <laughs> uh, he's, um, he's desperately afraid of his own power <laughs> in, in, in this story um, and uh, Peter is, is, is a part of that And I, anyway um, yeah, I, I, I 
kind of put my money where my mouth was, really, and, and decided why not create him as the main character. So that's, that's what I did. So it's kind of a, an attempt to reinvent the character as something a bit more positive. Um, this, is, this is what I'm, I've been doing recently. This is one of my most recent things. Uh, so this is called Crazy Neighbours, and um, this is a German uh, cannabis-themed uh, humour anthology. Um, me and Gavin Mitchell, because uh, me and Gavin really worked well on, on Santa Claus. We, we formed a really strong working relationship, and we wanted to carry that on. And um, I ha randomly met someone uh, at a convention who worked for this this Crazy Neighbours anthology, and I got in touch, and uh, yeah, uh, ended up doing a, a, a five-page strip for them. Now this this anthology um, sells huge numbers mm. uh, in in uh, across Europe. I mean, I think you know it, it's it's in the thousands, eas tens of thousands easily, mm. um, and they all sell in head shops. <laughs> um, and they're they're in different languages. So the guy that runs this, uh, he uh, he he travels around to various places like you know Netherlands and, and things and kind of promotes it and and it, it does pretty well. And uh, it was really good fun to do. And so he was just like, hey, you know, uh, how about doing a strip about this? He's quite you know he's he's quite hands on in terms of uh, what he wants the strips to be about, which which is great. Um, this strip. We decided to uh, do a pastiche of Last of the Summer Wine, um, where we've got three aging hippies uh, living in the Yorkshire Dales, um, who uh, they kind of the the crazy neighbours characters go and uh, try and buy this kind of super amazing, powerful weed that they've heard about from these kind of three aging hippies, and we just. We just thought it was really funny because it was it was obviously a parody mm. of Last of the Summer Wine, but nobody in Germany has heard of Last of the Summer Wine, <laughs> and we just thought it was really funny to uh, to do that to to kind of write a parody based on something that no one's ever heard of <laughs> in its target country. Just something to giggle at when we wrote it. Does it sell in British head shops? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I have kind of. It's, they're not really places I, I visit. Very much. I have to say. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, but I, I remember one. A new head shop appeared in Bristol, and I mm. kind of wrote to wrote to him and uh, the uh, uh, Dominic and uh, the publisher of this, mm. and, and uh, told him about it. And said, "Yeah, why don't you try sending them there?" I think he's had some trouble getting them into British head shops. Exactly why I'm not sure, but I think I think it's purely that comics are not as kind of socially accepted here as they are in most of, of Europe. I think it's but purely that. But paraphernalia is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think, you think that's one place where people I'll would buy a bomb, but my God, I'd be too embarrassed to buy a comic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite a funny, funny attitude, isn't it? Well, well comics are for kids. That's the whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You get comic, in Europe, it's, uh, comics have got a much wider reach, a mm. more sophisticated reach, whereas here it's, in terms of getting them stores, mm. stores that aren't comic stores, comics are for kids and stuff. Yeah. But I guess it's also been a good generation since um, Fabulous Fairy Free Brothers were being sold mm. in head shops. You yeah. know, so that connection has kind of been lost. Yeah. I mean, this is this is basically the a next generation of Fabulous Fairy Free Brothers, and he's managed to find some quite talented people mm. uh, to to work on the, on this. So uh, 
Yeah, this is this actually hasn't been published in English yet. It's um it's been published in other languages, but this is the this is the most recent edition. So he he prints one per year, mm. and we've done two so far, and I hope it continues because it's a really fun little thing to do. This is a story about um, the the crazy neighbours uh, being asked to uh, take part in a military training exercise and basically dress up as Russians and run around a, a, a military base, uh, and basically discovers that the army are actually growing weed on the base uh, without their without their head head officer knowing about it. Hmm. Um, yeah. So. Uh, Slumjoy. Yeah. Um, so you interviewed me about this before. I did. <laughs> yes, on a panel about cyberpunk. Yeah. Yeah. That oh, was quite fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. This we won cyberpunk. What? <laughs> it was kind of pitched as you know. Yeah. Which is better, cyberpunk or steampunk? And I think, oh right. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah. I think that um, uh, John Aggs was so passionate mm. about how much better cyberpunk was that he won the argument just through the force of will. <laughs> <laughs> So, Slumdroid um, illustrator Tony Soleri. This cover is actually by Boo Cook. Um, this is going to be published through Scar Comics. It's not been published yet. We, we published it, uh, it was designed to be in four parts, and we published the first two. And um, then we didn't actually manage to get to do the third, the third one. There were some problems with it. And, uh, and so we have ended up just kind of finishing the fourth one. And, well, we might as well just do it as a complete book. Um, so that's hopefully coming out early next year, or possibly early, and we'll, I guess we'll have to see. Um, but yeah, uh, this is it's, it's my only really uh, full-on sci-fi comic, actually. Um, the scenario is uh, that this character is the sheriff of uh, a town full of dysfunctioning, broken-down robots uh, that they're all kind of maintenance droids and things like that and there's another town of uh, interaction droids where known as alphas which actually interact with people um, and there's a class difference basically between the two and it's basically about uh, a what looks like a woman walks into the middle of uh, beta town his town in the middle of the night and sheriff uh, is clearly in distress. Sheriff basically, uh, is, is, she's pursued by two alphas who obviously are looking for her and Sheriff reacts defensively to the human as, as robots are designed to do and then realises that, that uh, this, this woman is not actually human. Hmm. She's a machine as well but she's designed to look like a human. And so he's basically just kind of transgressed a, a major law. He's destroyed two alpha machines and it kind of escalates from there and, and becomes this massive civil war drama <laughs> between the Alpha and Beta towns and it ultimately this this description from the first of about the first volume from SFX magazine full-on heavy metal class war <laughs> I really like because that's essentially what it is it it wasn't intended to be that it just kind of developed uh, what actually happened was I was trying to it was supposed to be a detective drama and I had to get characters from point A to point B without anybody noticing, and I couldn't do it. And so I triggered a riot with everybody else, and, and that just created a whole other storyline which took over, and hmm. it just became this massive, uh, massive thing. Uh, well, I get the feeling that you'd find it hard to write traditional science fiction unless there was some kind of social commentary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair to say, yes. 
Um, but, I mean, isn't that all, what all good science fiction well, has? Well, indeed. Um, Tony's artwork is quite eccentric. Mm. Um, he puts in an awful lot of crazy background details. And is, is, uh, he's, he's using this kind of line painterly style, somewhere kind of between line and paint work, um, which continually shifts through the book as mm. he's continually kind of keeping himself entertained. He had this... Uh, he actually didn't read the whole script <laughs> as he uh, as he drew it. He he actually read it one page at a time as he was drawing it. Hmm. So I had to tell him ahead of time if there was something he needed to know in order hmm. to draw it in. Uh, but he did it that way just to kind of keep himself uh, keep himself entertained as he as he drew it. Hmm. So this is what I'm working on now. So I'm I'm, do, I'm I'm back to drawing my own stuff again, and this is me. Yeah, <laughs> well, quite a few people uh, have told me on a regular basis over the last few years that I really ought to draw my own book again, which is a really nice thing to be told. And I was just thinking, oh, no, drawing hasn't been, isn't good enough. Other people can do it better. But the main problem is that it's very difficult to get anyone to draw your work um, unless you're offering them a huge amount of money, which I think, as we know, in comics, doesn't really happen very often. Um, if you've got a publishing deal in place, then it makes it a lot easier, but that very rarely happens. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, do, I have like nine or ten projects which are all kind of written or semi-written that are just basically in limbo, mm. waiting for the artist to actually get moving on it for one reason or another. But probably the biggest reason is a lack of money. Because obviously if I'm saying, hey, can you draw this book? It's what you've always wanted to draw, you know, and it is what they've always wanted to draw. But I'm not offering them money. Mm. Obviously, they're going to go with the person who's offering them money mm. uh, to draw the next strip in 2080 or whatever. Uh, so it's very difficult, um, and so I decided to go back and do my own book again. And this is uh, this is a, this is a book called A New Jerusalem, and it's going to take it's going to take quite a while before this comes out mm. um, because it's it's a 150 page book and I'm photo referencing it at the moment and I've drawn maybe six or seven pages to kind of get a feel for what it's going to be but I'm working through it very methodically um, and obviously I'm kind of drawing in between my day job and stuff like that as well um, but anyway yeah so the story is about a nine-year-old boy whose father comes home from the Second World War uh, with what we would now describe as PTSD. Uh, but PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was not known at the time. It was described as shell shock, uh, and it was not a recognized condition. But really, the, the story is about the idea that the war didn't end uh, when people came home. Mm. It carried on in people's minds. It, the, you know, the effects of the war lasted for a lifetime, and it was a very, very damaging thing. And it's partly inspired by my dad's stories of growing up in Liverpool just after the war and seeing and playing on bomb sites, and which is one of the main things that happens in the story. Mm. It's these two children who spend a lot of time playing on a bomb site. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's about the idea that the physical landscape and the psychological landscape were the same. That you'd, you know, you'd see rows of houses and occasionally you'd have destroyed ones. And it was the same with people, you know. Lots of people survived the war, but a lot of people mm. psychologically didn't. And it's it's really exploring, exploring that. So it's quite. It feels a very personal book. Obviously, I didn't. I haven't been to war, <laughs> uh, but it it feels very personal. 
So this is some of the art style. Again, it's, it's like, as you said before, I know you, you might be able to see it a lot better on the monitor if you look later, but as you said before, it's um, the, the people, the characters, are the faces are simplified, but the backgrounds are immensely detailed. Although you've brought this similar rendering to the characters as well this time. I so have, it's more holistic rather yeah, than separating out the two. I have w with this one, but I'm starting to wonder if I've actually made a mistake <laughs> doing that. Uh, so I'm still finding the style. I'm still it working it through. Thank you. Because um, like at the moment there's shading on the face and I'm mm. starting to think actually that doesn't work so well. Um, I, originally I went much more detailed on the face, but it, it just looked stiff because mm. it was photo reference. The more detail you put into photo reference, the stiffer it looks. And so I've, I'm kind of thinking about reining it back. Like, like I say, I'm, I'm still finding the style. Mm. Although obviously I suppose there's you might have to compromise just in terms of knowing you have so many pages to draw and whether you want to spend the rest of your life doing it or... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's not as, it's, it's a faster way of working than it actually looks because okay. a lot of the work actually comes, is, is in finding the reference that, mm. I, that I want to, to use because obviously I have to be careful about uh, using licensed images and stuff like that so I have to find things in the public domain or go out and mm. photograph them myself and so on. Um, or, or get permission, you know, which all three of which I've done. Um, so, yeah, it, that actually is what really takes the time. Once once it's all there, um, then I can kind of. It, it yeah it, it might it doesn't take me as long as you might think. And which leaves us with oh no, there's another one in between. Uh, yeah, this is another book I'm working on because it's, so this is basically the stuff I'm kind of developing at the moment. So this is a book called uh, Auslander, which I'm uh, I'm actually pitching around at the moment. Uh, so this is uh, a friend of mine called John Barber, who uh, uh, I, I know in, in Bristol and is, is actually a work colleague. Um, he uh, went to East Germany uh, uh, to study to study German. It's like when you study German as a degree or as any language. You spend one year in a foreign country, in, in the country that speaks that language. Mm. And he had the opportunity to go and study in East Germany in 1989. Huh. And he arrived in September 1989. In November of that year, the Berlin Wall came down. And by the time he left the country, the country essentially didn't exist anymore. So he, was, he arrived mm. exactly when everything started to kick off. And... Uh, it's a story of a unique moment in history as perceived by someone who lived, lived and experienced it. So it's, it's an oral history project, in effect. Mm. Um, the artist is uh, a Polish artist called Anna Kirsten, who uh, I found uh, through, uh, through various kind of connections and, and so on. Mm. Um, yeah, she's a fairly, fairly young artist, very, very talented. Yeah. I, I wanted someone from the east oh. who uh, who would know what the east look what the east looked like and have a have a really you know a strong feel for it. So I was really excited to find. Although it. if she's young, then all of this probably happened before. She's yes, <laughs> yes, it did. Young enough to experience it. It did, but it it almost doesn't matter cause mm. because of the cultural memory and and so on. She she will have a much stronger idea mm. uh, than someone from this country would. Mm. So. Like I said, a lot of my projects are in limbo at the moment. This is, this is one of them. This is Unfinished City, which I uh, co-wrote with a friend. Um, and 
Yeah, it's a noir thriller, okay. basically. Huh. Yeah. So you do have a lot on the go. I, really, I <laughs> genuinely do. I've written a lot of stuff, and a lot, and you know, most of it hasn't been published, um, which which is why I started drawing my own stuff again. Mm. And this is something I would really impress on people. Actually, is if you can draw your own stuff, do because it's unbelievably difficult to get anyone else to draw your stuff. <laughs> it really is. Uh, this is a story called Children of the Moon by uh, by. Uh, this illustration is by James Mackay, who did uh, Flesh for 2000 AD, mm. amongst other things. Uh, and that is a folk tale set in caveman times. It's, based, it's inspired by the fact that um, uh, most of our folk tales have been lost. The vast, vast majority of them. The oldest global story we have, uh, on a global s scale, as far as I'm aware, is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is about mm. 5,000 mm. years old. Humans have been around for 50,000 years in their current form, more or less. What stories were they telling 10, 20, 30, 40,000 years ago? We have no idea. They've all gone. So it's the idea of trying to tell a folk tale from caveman times, basically, um, and trying to create a very realistic and believable society, but at the same time having... There's a lot of uh, kind of magical realism in the story as well, because obviously they lived in a, a world that was not necessarily based on... Uh, Science, <laughs> as, or, you know, as we understand it today. Hmm. And coming back to kestrels, yes, <laughs> as um, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a story that uh, I'm doing with Mick McMahon, um, and this is a uh, uh, it's it's a story set in the Second World War, and it's uh, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a children's adventure story. Basically, it's 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 very kind of um, Enid Blyton, C.S. Lewis. Uh, those kind of children's, you know, quite innocent children's adventure stories, but um, it, it was inspired by the fact that the Famous Five is, if you if you read it as an adult and you look at the kind of time, the, the kind of time in which it's set, it's quite clearly set in the late thirties or early forties. It's set in a time when we were at war, but there's no war taking place. Hmm. It's set in a time that actually doesn't exist. Uh, so. I guess the inspiration was, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if I created a, a, a children's story using the archetype of two girls and two boys um, and set it in the Second World War and set it against real events, set it again, you know, in the backdrop of things that really happened because um, there are things that happened in the war that could only have happened within the space of a, a month or two. You know, there's an adventure that they could only have had could only have taken place within this space of time. So that's that's really the idea behind the castles. There's a bit more to it than that, but I, I won't go into too much you can say. Well, and, and it seems like many of your projects that it's taken a number of years to bring to fruition, unfortunately, because of yeah. you know earning a living as a comic book creator isn't the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it is the, uh, the biggest kind of stumbling block at the moment is that uh, you know, I'm approaching stuff without a without a publisher and without a an artist, and, and it's a catch twenty two if you're a writer, really, because you know how do you persuade an artist that you're good enough to work with them? Well, mm. thankfully, I, I've been around long enough, and I've got enough stuff out there that people can see that I can write, and that people can see that I I can do a good job and everything. So that's not necessarily a problem anymore. Um, 
the problem is more, um, you know, publishers are, are aware of me, but they don't. But because I haven't been published that much, they're not necessarily as trusting as they might be. For you need to have people. that killer app. That you <laughs> it's. I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, you know, yeah, maybe it's a case of one book every and suddenly break out. I think it's much more likely it's going to be a slow drip, mm. drip feed as, as as these things happen. Um, but I mean, the market is tough. It's it's always been tough. It's, I mean, even if you've been published several times before, I mean, I'm sure people around here will tell you that that doesn't mean you're going to get published again. It's just, it, it, it is really difficult. So, you know, if you have an artist on board but you don't have a publisher who's offering you an advance, well, how do you get to the next stage? If you have a publisher that likes the idea but you don't have an artist, well, how do you get to the next You know, I mean, that's an easier way around. But mm. it's, uh, it's, it's, it is a real challenge. It is a real challenge. But the thing is... The way I approach it is, um, okay, well, that project's uh, going to be on hold for a few months. Mm -hmm. Right, I'm going to write the next one. And it just keeps going like that, really. That's, that's kind of how I work. I, I'm, I'm a compulsive writer. I, I'm not going to stop, <laughs> even if I'm not getting published. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, does anyone have any questions for Ben? I would, I would like to ask you about Fight the Power. I mean, that's a very heavy book. And uh, a lot of pages, and very expensive to print and produce. Mm. Um, the publisher was was dedicated to. I mean, tell me about the publisher. Was he was he dedicated to the political? Yeah, the the publisher is a new internationalist in the UK and Seven Stories in the US. Uh, both of whom are uh, kind of political, left of centre uh, publishers. Uh, both of whom um, have published comics before but are not necessarily recognised as comics publishers. Um, and Sean has a, a better track record than I do uh, and um, had already been published with Seven Stories, so that was, that was great. Um, New Internationalist, I don't think Sean had... But, yeah, um, they were one of the places we shopped it around to and they, uh, they were quite quite into it but they, they got really excited when, when they saw it so uh, yeah they've been really good actually in the international so, yeah. and how much is it to buy? Uh, well I happen to have copies with me <laughs> <laughs> I've got five copies with me to buy it's uh, uh, ten pounds so, and, and a signature did you finish Falling Sky before you went to publishers with it? yes yeah, Falling Sky was a, a personal project uh, that I basically um, drew when I was uh, not really, I wasn't really very well at the time, so I wasn't really doing much else. So it was a, it was a, a, a it, yeah, it, it was a kind of pet project that, that kept me going for, for a while. Um, yeah. For a year or more? Um, it probably did take me that long <coughs> in the end, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, to, to answer your question, yeah, it was it was finished. It was a complete package. But uh, people knew that I was I was doing it, right. and I was showing it to people as I was going along. Um, so by the time by the time it was finished, um, Shane at Scar was already interested in, in publishing it. So it was a matter of actually finishing the book at that point. All your uh, all your writing is your is your own. Ideas, the things that you actually want to pursue. Yes. Yeah. This thing is a great idea, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, 
a lot of writers, uh, they think, well, I think I should draw Batman, because that will really get me <laughs> yeah. where I want to be. Yeah. I mean, are you exploring any of that uh, possible avenue into mainstream yourself? Um, I keep thinking I ought to go and try Future Shocks again, because <laughs> uh, that's obviously an avenue in, and it, I know it's worked for people I know, like uh, David Bailey has, has managed to create a, a, a career for himself in, in that route, and I'm you know, really impressed by how he's done that, and he, you know, he came from like, Accent UK anthologies and stuff as well. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I do keep thinking I ought to do that really. Because yeah, um, you're not actively pushing for the no. for a, mainstream at all, are you? I not, mean, not really, no. But that's, I mean, you know, that's the route. That's yeah. the because uh, people do the mainstream stuff, yeah. and then they go off and do their yeah. their pet their pet ideas. You're doing it in sort of reverse, aren't you? <laughs> Maybe that's where I'm going wrong. Ben's <laughs> got a range of projects. I yeah. think the um, I had it, I must say it was a revelation to me that you did your own. Oh, and it looks great, and the new project that you're working on, mm. I mean, I think that, you know, that is your, you know, with the, based on your dance story and mm. so on, and that immediately, you know, that's actually the idea of that, it's like we were talking about before, before they started about yeah. sort of things that, you know, what's marketable, yeah. but I actually think that that, um, that sort of sounds quite good on you because mm. I mean these other projects are really interesting and they're all eminently publishable mm. also and it's just actually kind of finding what what chimes with yeah. you know with someone or a publisher so yeah I'm really excited about that one that was great and I suppose it's like what David was saying about the mainstream there are different mainstreams yeah so I imagine somebody buys New Internationalist magazine, and mm. when it comes with a little catalogue of the books we publish, mm. someone might buy Fight the Power because they like, you know, like lefty political stuff, and yeah. they may have never bought another comic in their life. Yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, I, I, my process really is is just, oh, what do I want to write next? You know, and I, and I've got you know a whole load of ideas in my head, and it tends to be just which one is shouting the loudest. Uh, is it, it tends to be how I go about it, and I, I guess. I've taken the approach of um, wanting to be a writer that had a particular identity that just came from what I wanted to write, which is kind of how it works in your, your kind of prose novels world. You, you're not necessarily going to say, okay, I'm going to write uh, a Mills and Boone <laughs> or, you know, whatever with these characters. It's, I mean, it kind of. It seems a slightly odd way around, in a, in a way that um, to get famous you go and write, you know, Batman or whatever for a year or whatever, and then people know who you are, and then you go off and do your own thing. And I know plenty of people who do that, and that's, mm. and you know, I have a lot of respect for them for doing that because um, it is a good way to do it. Um, I don't know. I, I just, uh, 
I think it's about it's about the time, mm. you know, how patient you are. Yeah. I mean, you're very patient. You yeah. just in, and uh, you're not looking desperately for it to be your main source of income. No. So so you've got the time. You've got the patience. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people who really want to get in the business are fired by the business and the medium itself, and they just you know, and a lot of them are sort of like fans of yeah. the mainstream of Batman. They want to do that. That's what they want to do. Yeah. And they're desperately looking for that. Whereas you're just writing because you like writing. Yeah. I mean, I, I and because I feel I have something to say, um, and I, I, I mean, I didn't grow up reading Batman and Superman, and you know, if if DC happened to say to me, "Hey, do you want to write Batman?" I don't think I'd say no, <laughs> uh, but I'm not actively. That's not my goal, if you see what I mean. My my goal is is to write stories that that you know have have something to say, if if you like. I'm not sure, I, if if and if I wrote Batman, I want it to say something. I know you can do that, but <laughs> it's can. kind of yeah. It's uh, I think David Hyde found that a bit of a struggle. But <laughs> I, I I had a good chat with David Hyde about mm. this actually. Yeah, um, I, I I directly asked him, can you actually do that? And he said, yeah, as long as you put the toys back in the box when you finish. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, that was interesting. For more information about Ben Dixon's comics please go to bendixon.co.uk. That's bendixon.co.uk. You can find information about some of his titles by going to scarcomics.com and the latest installments of Santa Claus vs. the Nazis can be found at acesweekly.co.uk. If you enjoyed my Q&A with Ben Dixon... Ben is a guest at the Graphic Brighton Festival, taking place at the University of Brighton on the 9th and 10th of December, where he'll be joined by a couple of co-creators on the new internationalist comic book anthologies that he's worked on. This two-day festival is looking at portrayals of war and conflict in comic books, and guests include Dave McKean, filmmaker and cover artist of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, We'll be talking about his latest graphic novel and multimedia project, Black Dog, The Dreams of Paul Nash, husband and wife graphic novelist team Brian and Mary Tolbert, who'll be talking about their book, The Red Virgin and the Vision of Utopia, and Kate Evans, who'll be exploring her graphic novel, Red Rosa, a graphic biography of Rosa Luxemburg. Across the two-day conference, they'll be joined by manga creators, young illustrators from the crowdfunded collection Brighton's Graphic War, and many others. The 9th of December is an academic conference and public events start on the evening of Friday the 9th and all day Saturday the 10th. You can find more information about the festival by going to graphicbrighton.wordpress.com where there are links to buy tickets on the University of Brighton's online store. Before that, there are various other comic book events taking place across London and the home counties. On Friday the 2nd of December, Jim Medway will be launching his new graphic novel for children, Sergeant Chip Carlton and Mr. Wuffles of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. That's on Friday the 2nd of December from 7pm. And then on Thursday the 8th of December, Rob Davis will be launching his new graphic novel at Gosh, The Can Opener's Daughter, published by Self-Made Hero. If you can't make either signing, then 
there are signed book plate editions of various books available at Gosh in their store at 1 Berwick Street in Soho and on their website goshlondon.com. Later in December, Orbital Comics near Leicester Square Tube at 8 Great Newport Street from 6pm on the 15th of December. The creators of the new Hookjaw comic published by Titan, Cy Spurrier, Connor Boyle, Mark Lamming, Brian Williamson and others will be signing the new Savage Shark comic from 6pm and that's followed by drinks and a live Q&A from 7.30. The following day on Friday the 16th of December, James Roberts and Jack Lawrence will be signing the first issue of the new Transformers comic Lost Light and that's taking place from 5pm on Friday the 16th of December. For more information about all Orbital signings, please go to orbitalcomics.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. Why not think about contributing to the Patreon campaign to help fund the travel expenses and equipment costs of yours truly? If you go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, stroke panel borders, you can sign up and help contribute to the making of the program. You can find all previous episodes of Panel Borders on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.